0: But what? You look good. No, I've been away for a little while. They, uh, yeah, I've been in Florida. But I'm back. I like California. Kind of drizzly today. That's kind of different. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard somebody introduce a topic to you with these words? I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. Which do you want to hear first? Well, we could use that approach to our last two chapters we've been studying. In Ezra chapter 8, it's full of great news. Today we come to Ezra chapter 9 and it brings the bad. Is this an odd way to introduce a sermon? Hey, thanks for coming to church today. Open your Bibles to some bad news. (laughs) But you know what? Sometimes we need to peer into our own inner darkness. Before we can understand the light of God's truth. you know, Sometimes we need to read in God's word and say oh no. Before his truth becomes real to us and he shows us that we can say oh yes. Ezra chapter 9 is a very convicting and rewarding chapter if we come to it with open and honest hearts. So let's pray that our hearts are in that condition together. Please. Father, we come before you on a beautiful day. Thank you for this church. Thank you for these incredibly gorgeous people that are sitting here today, that we can come and just love you and love each other and open your word. And in opening your word, Father, we understand your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And even though we can read the English on our pages, we need your Holy Spirit to bring the truth to light in our lives. So please, Father, do that for us. For each heart here, touch each heart. May we all have open and receptive hearts to hear exactly what you want to tell us this morning from your word. We ask this in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please turn to uh, Ezra chapter 9. And while you're doing that, I want to share something with you. Some of you or most of you probably have already heard that Pastor John is going in for surgery next month. And I want to give you the details. For those of you that are maybe new to our church, John Warhaus, is the founding pastor of this church. And he retired, it'll be two years ago, come this August. Two years already, that's, that's incredible. Two years. If you know John, then I think you would agree that John has the greatest heart for the Lord of anyone I've ever met. And he also has the most love and joy in his heart for this church and for each one of you. Ironically, it's his heart that's giving him trouble. Pastor John has a defective aortic valve which means that it's not pumping the blood as much blood as it should. So he has been experiencing weakness and shortness of breath and it's getting worse. Medicine and exercise cannot correct that problem so surgery is his only option. So Pastor John as you see will have surgery on July 5th at 7 o'clock, July 5th at 7 o'clock in the morning. It's a serious and delicate operation. It'll take it's a four-hour operation, followed by intensive care and a long rehab. PJ and K are doing great, but obviously they need our prayers, and they've asked for us to pray for them. John's also provided his email address, his personal email address. So if you want to shoot him a word of encouragement or send him your family remedy for heart trouble, there's his address. Now, I know how some of you think. Some of you think, I'm going to get on a plane and go up and see him. I know that some of you have probably already thought of that. Pastor John has asked me to tell you, please don't do that. That would actually cause more stress for him. And he's confident that God can hear our prayers from here. If you would like updates on Pastor John's condition, please make sure you are signed up with the prayer team's uh, prayer letter. You can do that by going online or or picking up a card at the back, because they will be providing updates for us. Oh, PJ had one more thing he wanted me to tell you. Yeah, he loves you. And he is praying for you. Let's together lift up Pastor John and Kay up in prayer. Father, we we are reminded in a situation like this that you hold the next beat, every beat of our heart in your hands. And we place Pastor John's heart into your holy hands, Father. We just lift up John and Kay. We, we love them so much that we can't bear the thought of them being under stress or being in pain so Father we just pray right now you'd wrap your hands and arms tighter around them them than normal and you'd already be just giving them peace and encouragement towards this day as it gets closer I pray right now you would already be be preparing the doctors and medical staff to be brilliantly successful please give John a speedy and safe recovery and Kay all the strength she needs to nurse him back to health According to your perfect will, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ezra chapter 9. I'd like to do something a little different. You know, normally we read the whole chapter together. I'd like to do something a little different, if you don't mind. I'd like to read it a section at a time, just to let the story unfold. So let's start by looking at the first seven words of Ezra chapter 9 together. We'll just start with that. Ezra chapter 9 opens with these words. Now when these things have been completed, what things? What things? Ezra's referring back to what took place in chapter 8. Ezra's talking about his journey from Babylon to Jerusalem, how he worshipped God in Jerusalem, and how he completed his delivery of the exiles and the artifacts to the temple in Jerusalem. If you were here the last two weeks, and I hope you were, you saw Pastor Mark teach chapter 8 with as much excitement and joy as I've ever seen from him. if you remember last week, he, he began by coming to the front of the stage and going, I love this section of the scripture. Do you remember that? Do you remember how pumped up he was? The reason I'm asking you to try to picture him is because I think Pastor Mark's exuberance mirrored Ezra's. Because in chapter 8, Ezra praised the Lord for his faithfulness by bringing the remnant back to Jerusalem. He praised the Lord for protecting them on the four-month journey. And Ezra praised God for his holiness. Ezra chapter 8 challenged you and I with this question. You remember? If you and I are not pursuing holiness, if the goal of our lives is not to live as God has called us to live, then what is more important to us? Well, chapter 9 answers that question like a punch in the gut. Chapter 8 shines with hope, but chapter 9 turns out the lights. In chapter 8, Ezra's dream comes true, but in chapter 9, he finds himself in a nightmare. Am I being too dramatic? You can decide for yourself as we go through this chapter. Here's the outline for this. It's only two stanzas. We're going to start with some ugly news. And then we're going to finish with a beautiful prayer. I want you to do something. I want you to try to picture yourself as Ezra God called you to lead the second group of exiles to Babylon your four month journey was about 900 miles long you walked the whole way that would be like you walking from here up to Sisters Oregon where John and Caleb but remember don't walk up there because he doesn't want you to go up there he just wants you to pray your route would take you through dangerous territory where armies of thieves could attack you at any moment Why would anyone want to attack you? Maybe it's because you were transporting billions of dollars with the gold, silver, and bronze for that temple in Jerusalem. But God protected you every step of the way. If you were Ezra, you'd be thinking a lot about the history of your people. You'd be thinking about how your forefathers sinned time and time again to bring God's judgment upon them. But you know what else would be uppermost in your mind? You'd be thinking, I'm sure, Okay, this time the people have learned their lesson. Certainly, they were no longer going to be a people of disobedience and corruption. They were once again going to be God's holy nation. So, as you were walking along, you might look down at your sandals, your dusty sandals crossing that hot desert, and you might be trying to picture what is it going to be like for you when you step foot in Jerusalem for the first time in your life? And you see that temple that that first group of exiles had been building and it was finished about 50 years before you got there. You know, we sing that song. Build your kingdom here. Let the darkness fear. Show your mighty hand. Heal our streets and land. You know that song? I love you too much to have sang it for you, so I just wanted to say it. But you know that song? I imagine if you were Ezra, you'd be singing the same song. It would be in Hebrew. But it would be the same prayer. You'd be saying, God, restore us, revive us, heal us, make us your holy people again. Finally, toward the end of your four-month journey, you would look up and you'd see Jerusalem on the horizon. What would that be like for you? Can you imagine that, seeing Jerusalem for the first time? Would your hands be raised in praise? Would tears of joy be spilling from your eyes down your parched cheeks? When you enter Jerusalem, it would be the crowning moment of your life as you worship the Lord and you delivered all the people and all the valuables safe and sound. With more joy than you've ever felt in your soul, in your life, you'd see some of the local leaders coming your way. Oh, must be a welcome party or a, or, or a prayer group, you'd think. So you'd rush to them and you'd embrace them, give them big manly hugs, pick them up off the ground, kiss them on the cheeks, big hugs. But as you release them, and step back and looked into their faces, you'd see that they had these concerned expressions on their faces. And you'd feel your own smile run away from your face. You'd say, what's the matter? The local leaders might have looked at each other, trying to decide who's going to break the bad news to, to you. Finally, one of the leaders spoke and said, Ezra, we bring terrible news. So many people want to hear the word of God. We overfilled the temple and we had to turn thousands of people away. Is that the news you heard? If you were Ezra, that would be the kind of news you'd want to hear, but that's not the news you got. Let's look at verse 1 and 2 together. Chapter 9, let's read the news that Ezra received. Imagine you're Ezra. Now when these things have been completed, the princes, the leaders approached me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands according to their abominations. Those are the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race is intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. Have you ever been so close to having a dream come true and then it didn't? You know what it feels like to have your bubble burst? Let me show you a picture of what it was like if you were Ezra. This wasn't a bubble bursting. This was the Hindenburg. The exiles that had come before you to build the temple and reestablish Israel as God's holy people were now committing the same heinous sins that resulted in their Babylonian captivity and 70-year exile. God called their sins abominations. This means to God their behavior was disgusting and revolting. The sin permeated their business, their government, their social life, their family life, and of course most of all their spiritual life. The root of their sin was to marry idol worshippers against God's command. Let's do something together. Keep your place in Ezra. Let's turn to Deuteronomy fifth book of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 7. We need to do something for a minute. Let's take time out to read God's actual instructions about intermarrying the idol worshippers of the lands. Because you know what? Maybe maybe God's words were unclear. Maybe God's language was vague or he was incomplete. Let's read what God actually said to the people. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1-6 to six. When the Lord your God shall bring you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and shall clear away many of the nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God shall deliver them before you and you shall defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Verse 4, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their ashram and burn their graven images with fire. Verse 6, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the of the earth is God clear the problem was not that the people misunderstood what the Lord said the problem was the people didn't want to do what the Lord said the people loved the things in their world equal to or more than they loved the things of God our decision to disobey God has a name Our decision to disobey God has a name, and the name is compromise. What does the word compromise mean? Here's the dictionary definition of the word compromise. Compromise means the acceptance of standards that are lower than what is desirable. Back in college, I had a professor tell me this true story. He said at the end of one of his courses, a student came up to him who had failed the course. And and with astonishment, he said, Professor Mitchell, how could you give me an F? I was shooting for a D. The student had accepted standards that were lower than what is desirable. Let's apply this dictionary definition to those of us who love the Lord. This is what the word means to us then. Compromise is the acceptance of standards that are lower than God's. Let that sink in. We want to live wholly unto the Lord We don't want to accept standards that are lower than his, lower than God's. Here's how the sin of compromise gets started. We say a very dangerous three-letter word to God. What is that dangerous three-letter word we do not want to say to God? I'll spell it for you. V-U-T. But. Here's the dictionary definition of the word but. It's an interesting one, isn't it? It's to introduce something contrasting with what has already been said. When we say but to God, we're introducing something that we want to do that is different than what he's already said. For example, we might say, Lord, you told me to love my neighbor, but you don't know my neighbor. God, you told me not to covet, but there are things in this world that I want that I don't have. Father, you told me to leave vengeance to you, but... I just need to get even. Here's our homework assignment for this week. Let's all watch our language. By that I mean, let's see how many times we are tempted to say the word but to God. How many times are we willing to accept a standard that is lower than God's? The exiles came to Jerusalem to build the temple for the Lord. They came to be God's holy people. But some of them fell right back into the same sin. That got them punished in the first place. What happened to those people that did that? Let's retrace our, their steps together and see if we can figure that out. Turn back to Ezra chapter 2 verse 64. let we'll, Let's go quickly re- remind ourselves how the people got to where they are in chapter 9. Ezra 2 verse 64 it says, The whole assembly numbered 42,360. The first group of exiles that came out of Jerusalem out of Babylon to Jerusalem numbered about 50,000 people when you include some of the other people they brought along. Remember that number. 50,000. That's a lot of people. Let's look ahead to chapter 3 verse 1. Now when the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. This is so awesome. 50,000 people gathered as one. They were all on the same page with God. Great things happen when we're all on the same page with God. Let's read on. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' households and said to them, Let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, the king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But, Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of fathers households of Israel said to them you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God but we ourselves will build together to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus the king of Persia has commanded us with unwavering devotion the united people of Israel refused to compromise they refused to accept help from God's enemies as they were told I wish the story ended there I wish all our stories ended with us refusing to make compromises look at chapter 6 verse 21 the sons of Israel who returned from exile and all those who had separated themselves from the impurity of the nations of the land to join them to seek the Lord God of Israel ate the Passover in chapter 6 we read about this special group of people that had avoided the sinful practices of their idol-worshipping nations. But this also means there was another group, a group of those that did not separate themselves from the sin of their neighbors. Why did one group decide not to live as God called them to live? They had an eye problem. When we take our eyes off the Lord, sin always looks good to us. Sin will always look attractive to us when we see it through our eyes instead of looking at it through God's eyes. So when we get to chapter 9, we discover that the people that once refused even to work with the idol worshippers were now marrying them and having children with them and acting just like them. Sin doesn't happen by accident. Let's remind ourselves of James 1, 14-15. This is in the New living translation says temptation comes from our own desires which entice us and drag us away these desires give birth to sinful actions they give birth to compromise and when sin is allowed to grow it gives birth to death here's a quote from a poet you might have heard of Ralph Waldo Emerson he said it this way sow a thought and you reap an action Sow an act, you reap a habit. Sow a habit, and you reap a character. Sow a character, and you reap a destiny. Every day, every single day, you and I, we have hundreds, if not thousands of opportunities to decide if we're going to obey God or not. Every choice we make is a choice of obedience or disobedience to God. The sinful infection of compromise spread through that entire community in Israel. Look back at verses 1 and 2. It says the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. Look at verse 2. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers are foremost in this unfaithfulness. The very leaders that should have stood strongest for God were the worst offenders. Maybe they had the most to gain from intermarrying for money or prestige or whatever. When we decide that we're going to stop following the Lord because we want to pursue something else, whatever that other thing is, it's not going to end well for us. So again, try to imagine yourself as Ezra, hearing this news. The people you love, the people you thought had learned their lesson, The people you thought wanted to be holy and obedient to the Lord. The people that you traveled all that distance to come be their priest and teach. Your fellow priests and leaders have taken wives and created families with idol worshipers and were involved in their abominations. Okay, you're Ezra. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to clean up that mess? Would you be overwhelmed? Ezra was. Look at verse 3. When I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe and pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. I love Ezra. His heart breaks when God's heart breaks. Ezra tore his outer robe and his inner garment. Why did he destroy his clothes? For two reasons. Because of his incredible grief and his incredible dread of God's wrath. After God had faithfully forgiven and restored the people, the people repaid God by going right back to their unfaithfulness. Maybe this pattern is speaking to some of us here today. Ezra not only tore his clothes, but you see what else he did? He pulled out hair from his head and from his beard. You know what's interesting about this? Nehemiah, who will lead the third group of exiles, he also confronted the sin of intermarriage. I'm going to put Nehemiah 13.25 on the screen. We'll be covering this later when we get to the book of Nehemiah. Look how Nehemiah confronted the sin of intermarriage. This is Nehemiah talking. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons nor take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Man, Nehemiah got in their grills. He cursed them. He smacked some of them around. He grabbed handfuls of their hair and their beard and yanked it out. Poor Ezra. Distraught Ezra. Tore out his own hair. I kind of like Nehemiah's approach better. I don't know if I could do what Nehemiah did, but I like it. You like it, Rob? You're nodding. I like that approach. Wow. (laughs) So after Ezra ripped his clothing and tore out his beard and hair, he calmed down and just went about his business. Is that right? Look at verse 3. He sat down appalled. That means he collapsed into a sitting position. The word appalled means Ezra was in shock. He was horrified. He was nauseated. He was pale. Have you ever received terrible news and that's how you felt? How long did Ezra stay like this? A couple of minutes? Look at verse 4. Then everyone who trembled at the words of of God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me and I sat appalled until the evening offering. Ezra remained in deep distress all day long. He couldn't move. The faithful ones that refused to get involved in that sin gathered with him. Ezra stayed appalled until the evening offering. The evening offering was the time when the people of Israel came to make their prayers and their offerings to God. So think about that with me. This means that some of the same people that were committing abominable acts at home were showing up at church. And they were going to make some sacrifices and say some prayers as if that would balance out their sin with God. When we sin, God does not want our religious activities. What does he want? Let's look at Psalm 51. It will be coming on the screen for you. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. When the evening offering came, Ezra stood up and then he delivered the most blistering lecture you ever saw. Full of finger pointing and all of that. Is that what he did? That's kind of what I probably would have wanted to do. No, let's read what he did. Verses 5 and 6. At the evening offering, I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn. And I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, Oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Here's a picture of what the high priest, this priest was doing at the evening offering. Well, Others were making prayers and sacrifices. Ezra stood up from his sitting his position and immediately fell to his knees. He was so mortified before God, he couldn't even look God in the eye to pray. He was so ashamed. When confronted with overwhelming sin, Ezra threw himself on the mercy of a merciful God. If our sin doesn't move us to tears, then we can never know the sweetness Of the Lord's forgiveness. Ezra's prayer is called an intercessory prayer because Ezra prayed on behalf of others. Ezra did not commit the sin of intermarriage or adultery. He was praying for those who had. So here's the question. It's personal. I'm sorry, but you have to answer this for yourself because I've been thinking a lot about this. When you and I see sin in our nation or sin in other people that we're not committing, do we get on our high horse or do we get down on our knees? and pray. Let's see what we can learn about prayer from Ezra. Look at verse 7 and 8. He prayed, Since the days of our fathers to this day we have been in great guilt and on account of our iniquities we our kings and our priests have been given into the hands of the kings of the land to the sword, to captivity and to plunder and to open shame as it is this day. But now for a brief moment grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in this holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. A humble prayer makes no excuses. A humble prayer does not blame others and it does not blame circumstances. Look how Ezra prayed. The selfish person prays, Lord, this is their problem, not mine. Ezra said, Lord, I too am guilty of sin. Ezra did not participate in that sin of intermarriage or adultery. Yet he did not pray, Lord, they're guilty. Judge those guys. Look what he said. He said, we are guilty. The iniquities are ours. The sin of disobedience and compromise contaminates every single one of us. Just us. In verse 8, Ezra prays. this is so sweet. Oh, gosh. But Now for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God. When we pray, we must remember the grace of God. We have to. We need to remember how much God has done for us. We need to remember how much He has forgiven us, how much He loves us. We need to remember how faithful He is to us. Here's another question. How would you, and how would I, face temptation differently if before we were tempted to respond to anything that came our way. Before that temptation took hold, we stopped to remember the grace of our God. How good God has been to us. Do you think if we stopped to remember the grace of God it would change how we respond to temptation? The ugly and yet beautiful message of Ezra chapter 9 is this. God knows how unfaithful you and I can be. Yet, he remains always faithful. In verse 8, Ezra prays, Grace has been shown from the Lord our God to give us a peg in this holy place. What does this word peg mean? Why is he talking about a peg? I had to look it up. In those days, their homes didn't have cupboards and closets like we do. So things were stored on pegs around the room. If something was on its peg, it meant that thing was exactly where it was supposed to be. Safe and sound where you could use it again. So Ezra was glorifying God for giving the people of Israel a peg, a place where they could be used by him and they were safe and sound in the promised land and in Jerusalem and in the temple. Verse 9. For we are slaves, yet in our bondage our God has not forsaken us, but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins and give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Nezor just praised the Lord for his loving kindness. Even while the people of Israel were in captivity because of their sin, God did not forsake them. God moved the hearts of the conquering kings to have compassion on the people of Israel so that he could release the exiles and they could be once again pressed into service doing kingdom work for the Lord. We have to ask ourselves, why? Why do we want to sin against a God like this? To give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem speaks of God's protection once again. When Nehemiah comes, he will build the physical wall. He'll rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. But this is speaking about God's protection because the people have been in sin. They've been scattered. They've been vulnerable. And now God had put his wall around them. You know, we too are just as weak as those people of Israel. We too can be scattered. Invulnerable. vulnerable. We need to confess our sins to the Lord. We need his wall around us in Anaheim Hills and Yorba Linda and wherever we go. Verses 10 to 12. Let's read those. Now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commands, which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands with their abominations which have filled it from end to end and with their impurity so now do not give your daughters to their sons nor take their daughters to your sons and never seek their peace or their prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever this right here is how you and I need to confess our sins to an all-knowing God just lay it all out there Don't pull any punches. Spell it out for God. Not that he needs to hear it, because he already knows it. We need to hear it. We need to come clean before we can be washed clean. We need to come clean before we can be washed clean. A friend of mine told me that he likes to pray out loud, especially when he's confessing sin. He doesn't pray out loud so God can hear him. He prays out loud so he can hear what he's saying. It's a good idea. Let's look at verse 13 and 14. After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you, our God, have requited us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us an escaped remnant as this, shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations? Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant nor any who escape? One of the most foolish things you and I can possibly do is take our sin lightly. Sometimes we categorize our sin, don't we? We have the big ones and we have the little ones. Sometimes we shrug at our sin when we should be in tears. Ezra understood that the Lord had every right to destroy them for their unfaithfulness time and time again. Yet in his perfect love, mercy and grace God did not give the people what they deserve hallelujah none of us want what we deserve we want God's mercy and grace let's read the conclusion of Ezra's prayer look at verse 15 the first three words O Lord God O Lord God of Israel you are righteous for we have been left an escape remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt. For no one can stand before you because of this. Question. Who is the Lord of your life? Really. Is it God? Or something else? Someone else. Who is the Lord of your life? As we're called God his Lord. Calling God our Lord means that we are recognize his complete authority over us and we submit everything to him. We put ourselves under his authority. We want to live as he has called us to live. When we sin, human nature is to run away from God, but the best thing we can possibly do is get on our knees like Ezra did before our God and throw ourselves on the mercy of his righteous court. Did you notice Ezra left something out of his prayer? Ezra made no requests of God through the entire prayer. Ezra asked for nothing. This was a prayer of intercession and confession, not solicitation. So, since Ezra didn't ask for anything, how did God respond to Ezra's prayer? What happened with the intermarriage problem? Did the nightmare end for Ezra? Was there spiritual revival in the land? You're going to have to come back next week to find out when Pastor Mark closes the book of Ezra with chapter 10. Or you know what? If you want to, you can read chapter 10 for yourselves. Our prayer team will be here to pray with you after this closing song. Let me uh, close this in prayer. Oh Lord, our God, give us hearts that break when we sin against you. Give us lips that are quick to confess our sins to you with excuses give us the strength dear Lord to reject compromise to refuse to accept standards that are lower than yours thank you in your righteousness Father that you never condone our sins but you always forgive our sins through Jesus Christ our Lord and it is in his name we pray Amen